Hey, would you join me in a word of prayer once again? Father, we love you. We're so grateful to be just gathered as your people, as your church, to sing to you, to pray to you. And Lord, we, uh, in, in humility, just come and ask for your help. We know that we need your spirit to discern and understand uh, the truths of your word. So would you come and speak and help us see and help us hear. Help us respond to you, Lord, in a way that is right and pleasing to you. God, we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, it's good to be with you. Welcome. Uh, My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad you're with us at FBC. And I want to invite you now, if you have a Bible, to join us in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Again, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, as we continue our sermon series, walking through the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The words will be on the screen. Or we also have some Bibles under the seats in front of you if you'd like to follow along in a hard copy. Um, As we get started, I ask you, have you ever read a passage in the Bible and wondered, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? Anybody ever had that experience? Okay, some hands raised. The rest of you are lying. Because we've all been there, right? We read something and we say, what am I supposed to do with this? There's, there's the message and the information and we hear it and we have it, but we wonder, what does this mean for my life? How do I apply this? How do I uh, properly respond to this? Now, again, there's a reason, of course, that, that the passage is there, whatever it is that we're reading, but sometimes it's not always readily available right on the surface what we are to do with it. If you can relate with that experience at all, I have good news for you this morning. And the good news is that this morning's passage is not one of those passages. Really, this morning's passage doesn't leave us wondering what to do with it or how to respond. It actually tells us really plainly and really clearly what to do with the message. See, the crowd in the passage uh, that we're studying, Acts chapter 2, Uh, has just heard this amazing sermon from the Apostle Peter at Pentecost. And he's talking about Jesus and all that Jesus has done. And we see in the text uh, that they don't know, the crowd doesn't know exactly right away how to respond, right? Look at verse 37. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? If they hear one of the most important sermons ever preached there on Pentecost about Jesus and how he's fulfilled prophecy, how he's Lord and Messiah, how he's resurrected and alive now. And they hear all this and their response is, what shall we do? It's an eternally relevant question, right? What is the proper response to the gospel. When we hear the good news of Jesus, what are we to do with it? How should we respond? That's what this passage is all about. And you'll notice in the text that there, there's a few steps or parts to the answer. And the first one we actually already read in verse 37. Again, it says, when the people heard this, they heard the message, they were cut to the heart. So before they even ask the question, what shall we do? What prompted this is this internal 
response. The Bible tells us something is going on in their hearts. It says they were cut to the heart. That word here carries the idea of uh, being pierced or stabbed or having this, this sharp pain within. This is the language of, of conviction. So the first step in a proper response to the gospel is exactly that. It's conviction. The crowd has this sense of, of remorse, deeply moved by the reality of their own sin. See, the crowd, they're coming face to face with the reality that as Peter preaches and he tells them, they have rejected the Messiah. They sent Jesus to the cross. The Lord of glory himself came to them and they sent him away. Instead of listening to the Messiah and following the Messiah, they killed Jesus. So they're aware of their sin Sin is a word that simply refers to how we have broken God's law. We've broken his commands. Sin is anything that is morally wrong because it goes against God's good and upright character. We sin when we break God's law in in thought, in word, uh, in action, or in inaction. Doing things that violate his holy and perfect commands. So the Jews understood the seriousness of sin, the consequences of sin. They had a whole sacrificial system that reminded them that sin required death. There was a punishment for breaking the law of God because God is good and he is just. But notice an important detail in the text. Peter is speaking to the crowd, a rather large crowd. We're going to read later that 3,000 of them were baptized. And so it was a rather large crowd, but he seems to be placing guilt upon them, all of them, without distinction. Now, think about that. They likely weren't the ones, uh, they weren't the Roman soldiers, for example, who literally uh, drove the nails into the wrists and hands of Jesus. They weren't themselves the, the Roman soldiers who went and arrested Jesus or, or beat or mocked Jesus. They weren't all members of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders who condemned him to death and schemed against Jesus. And yet Peter is making the case that there is guilt upon them for what has happened. Making the case that really the crucifixion of Jesus was a group project and they all shared some responsibility in it. See, the Gospels remind us really that that all of humanity is is guilty before God. None of us stand before him righteous. In fact, if we had been there back in the first century when Jesus walked the earth, nothing would have gone differently. We can't look at this and say, well, if we would have been there, we wouldn't have crucified him. Of course we would have. Nothing would have gone differently. And so we can see our own hearts and and the the wicked heart of humanity that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. We see our own sin uh, when we hear the crowds yell out, crucify him as they turn from Jesus. Not only is there this collective responsibility, but also there's this reality that it was our sin that required the cross. We're all guilty of sin. We've all broken the law of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. 
And that's why Jesus came to die. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Our sin was atoned for or covered over by his blood. He, he pays our death penalty. He has atoned for our crimes against God. And so because we're all guilty of our sin, we're all responsible then for the remedy there, which is the death of the Messiah, the Lord. So conviction is where we must start. This, it's this remorse, this pain in the heart over the fact that we have broken God's law. And not only that, not only are there, there legal realities, but also there are relational realities. We've not just broken his law, but we've broken his heart, I think you could say. Think about the relational dynamic for the Jews, how they would know how patient and gracious and kind and forgiving God had been with them over the generations. Right? If you read through the Old Testament, you just see this pattern, this cycle that's really repeated over and over again, where the people uh, sin, they turn their back on God, they reject him, they, they worship idols uh, over and over again. And then God responds, yes, with judgment, but also with, with mercy. He, he sought after them and he moved towards them in love and he forgave them and renewed them and blessed them. But then the cycle would repeat itself. You see this over and over again in the Old Testament. And so now, uh, in light of Peter's speech, these Jews in the first century are realizing they've done it again. They've rejected God again. And this time it was worse because it was God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself, who came, the Messiah, the Lord of glory, and they killed him. They're cut to the heart because they realize how, how wrong they were in assessing Jesus. Rather than bowing at his feet, seeing that he was the good shepherd who came to lay down his life for the sheep, that he was for them, he came to love them, he came to lead them and feed them, he came to give them life. Instead of recognizing who he was, look at how they treated him. There's this famous folk tale from Wales about Prince Llewellyn the Great and his favorite dog, Gellert. The story goes that Llewellyn was an avid hunter and he had many hunting dogs, but one of them was his favorite, Gellert. And he one morning set out to go hunting and he blew the horn as he would often do to gather his dogs for the hunt. And they all arrived that morning other than Gellert. Llewellyn, the prince, was disappointed, but decided to go hunting anyways without his favorite dog and went about his day and returned home later. When he returned, he was greeted by Gellert, his favorite dog, enthusiastically. Gellert ran up to him, but Llewellyn immediately noticed something was quite wrong. Gellert had blood on his snout, blood on his teeth, blood dripping from his face. The prince was naturally concerned and worried, and suddenly a horrible thought came to his mind. See, Llewellyn the prince had a, a son at home, uh, a mere child, and he wondered, was the blood on the dog's snout that of his one-year-old son? And so he ran to the child's nursery, and he believed his fears 
were realized. He saw blood scattered everywhere. He saw the nursery overturned, the cradle flipped over, and his child was nowhere to be found. Llewellyn was was convinced that his favorite dog, Gellert, had killed his son. So mad with grief, Llewellyn the prince takes his sword and he stabs Gellert in the heart. He kills him in anger right then and there. And as Gellert, his favorite dog, howls in the agony of death, Llewellyn hears a child's cry from the next room. He runs to the other room and he finds his child there, alive, unharmed. But next to the child was a wolf, covered, blood, lying dead. You see, Gellert was the hero of the day, not the villain. But Llewellyn got it all wrong. Now, emotions start to well up when we hear that story, don't they? I mean, when I first heard the story, it like ruined my day. I was like, this, this is too much. Um, and yeah, think about this for a moment. It's about, it's about a dog, right? And dogs are lovely and matter, of course. But it's about a dog. It's about how a dog was treated dishonorably. Because Llewellyn didn't realize how honorable and noble and good and faithful his dog had been. Llewellyn didn't realize how much that dog had done for him and for his family. How that dog was the hero, but instead Llewellyn treated him like a threat. He treated him like an enemy. And he killed him. And afterwards, his heart was cut with remorse. Realize then that this story doesn't even come close to capturing the vast injustice and dishonor that we as sinners have heaped upon our honorable, good, noble, faithful God. The Lord Jesus came to us in grace and truth to save us, to protect us, to give us life, to love us, and we rejected him and stabbed him in the heart, so to speak. So conviction is when, by God's Spirit, right, Jesus tells us in the book of John that it's the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit that convicts us. The Holy Spirit opens our hearts to understand this, to realize, I, I, have no, I, I had no idea what the Lord has done for me, how I had sinned against him and broken his law, in his heart, and now I see it. How do I make it right? Because I can't go on treating God as an enemy. I can't go on living the same way. I can't go on treating God as a threat. That's what the crowd is feeling, right? They're cut to the heart. They realize the, the weight of their sin and what they've done, and they ask, What shall we do? Now, conviction is not just for the crowd back then. Conviction, of course, is is for us today. As we hear the gospel, the necessary starting point is conviction. The necessary starting point for the Christian life is is conviction, realizing what we've done. Now, realize God doesn't want to leave us there. 
under the weight of guilt and conviction and shame and sorrow over our sin. He doesn't leave us there, right? He leads us to life and forgiveness and grace and mercy, of course, but we have to start there. We can't just skip over it because it's uncomfortable, right? We might actually feel worse when we come to church before we feel better. As we grasp the seriousness of our sin and how the Bible talks about our, how we're dead in our sin, how we're enslaved, how we're in debt, how we're under judgment, how we're needing to be rescued. Now again, sometimes we just want to fast forward past this because it's too uh, harsh or sad or negative. Uh, and we, we come to church because um, maybe we just want our self-esteem to be boosted, a little pat on the back and sent out the door. Uh, but we have to talk about this. The reality of sin, one, because the Bible talks about it. And two, because it's truly the only path, the only way to life and healing. Right? If we don't acknowledge that we're sick, we're not going to go to the doctor. If we want to understand the solution and how healing comes about, we have to understand the problem in the first place. Famous author Dallas Willard in his wonderful book, The Renovation of the Heart, he talks about what it's like when we try to skip over sin or ignore it or pretend like it's not there. And he writes that if we do that, if we try to ignore sin, what's going to end up happening is we're going to look around at our, our broken lives and our broken world. And if we can't talk about sin, then we're going to be basically like a farmer who sows his field and then comes up with bad fruit and no crops and no harvest and nothing but problems in his field, but who refuses to believe in or talk about weeds or worms or wild animals. And he just looks at his crops and he wonders, why are things so difficult and so, why are things so broken and why are things the way that they are? We have to understand the problem of sin. if We want to understand the solution. We have to understand the bad news if we want to understand the good news. And so the crowd gets this. They're cut to the heart. They're convicted. Step one, see what they do next though. Look at Peter's response as they asked him. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So first response, conviction. Second step of the response, repentance. Right? Peter says it quite plainly in verse 38. Repent. Now for some of us, that's a scary word. Or that's a word that we think is from like decades ago with a guy on the street corner with a bullhorn and something like that. It sounds harsh, but it's a biblical word. And that's a really important one. Repent. It has a few ideas um, that are kind of wrapped up in it. One is just the idea of, of having a change of mind. Changing your mind, rethinking something, and coming to a new conclusion. Think differently about it. But not only is repentance about changing your mind and thoughts, it's uh, an action word. Actually, uh, to repent carries the idea of turning around, turning, and, and going the other direction. And so I want to demonstrate repentance for you. I want to show you what this looks like in real time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk across the stage. And what I want you to do is when I get about halfway to yell out yeah, as loud as you can, repent. And I know some of you have been wanting to do this for some time to me. So just try it with me. Okay, I'm going to walk across. And then when the time is right, 
Okay. Good job. That was good. That was, a, that was better than first service. First service was quiet. That was well done. You see, that it's, it's to turn. I'm, I'm, I'm heading this direction with my life. I'm relating to God in, in a certain way. And now I'm going to turn around. And I'm actually now going to align my life, not with my sin and selfishness, but with the Lord and his ways. And I'm going to cast myself on his mercy. And I'm going to move towards him rather than away from him. To repent means to turn from our sin and turn to God. To no longer live for ourselves, but in a way that aligns with him and his word. It means acknowledging our sin and turning to the Savior. Now notice what what Peter didn't say. The crowd was cut to the heart. He, He preaches the gospel to them. They hear about Jesus and they're convicted and they say, what do we do? He he didn't say, don't worry about it, guys. You don't have to do anything in response. In fact, I'm sorry I made you feel bad. (laughs) Really, I don't want to ruin your day. You know, go about your day. Um, God loves you and all that. And so just, just doing what you're doing. You're fine. You're good. Don't do anything. He doesn't say that. He says you're convicted and you should be. And so the response is to repent, to turn to the Lord for his forgiveness. So there is notice, a response that God calls us to. In response to hearing the gospel and conviction, we're called to turn to Jesus, confessing our sin, repenting, and trusting in him. Really, you can't be a Christian unless you've done this. You can't be a Christian without repenting and having that initial response where I'm going to turn from my sin and turn to the Lord. And notice again, this is something that's not just for them. Uh, It's not just for people out there. You know, again, like let's go out to the street corners and yell, hey, repent to everybody. This uh, judgment starts at the house of the Lord. And so we need to be serious about repentance in here. And I honestly think part of the reason that the world doesn't take Christians seriously is because we tell other people to repent of their specific sins without practicing repentance ourselves. And so for us, repentance It's this initial response, yes, to the gospel, but then it's this continued pattern and way of life where we are convicted of sin. We we realize it more and more as we grow in Christ. There's still sin in our hearts that has to be worked out. We see it and we repent. We confess it. We turn from it and we trust in Christ. And it's not that we're getting re-saved over and over again. It's not that we're unsaved and we have to to come back to the grace of God and once again be saved. No, even in Christ, our salvation is secure and found in him because of his work. And yet the Christian life is one of repentance where we continue to come back to the Lord. We have to repent even as Christians of of our selfishness. There are times where we come to realize, man, we've made life so about us and our comfort and our preferences rather than the Lord's. There are times when we're convicted about how we've failed to love others, how we've been blind to the needs of our world. There are times when we're convicted about how we've been trying to live as if we're self-sufficient and as if we don't need the Lord or we don't need community or the church where we're practicing self-reliance and we need to repent of that. There are times where we need to repent of idolatry that we, even as Christians, have started to, to worship and esteem things other than God. And we need to return to Him. Conviction. 
repentance. Notice Peter says something else right after. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Conviction, repentance, baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Baptism, what is baptism? It's this uh, step we take where we are immersed in water in the name of Jesus, brought up out of the water, and it's demonstrating this relationship we have with the Lord, this new life we experience in Christ. Baptism is this outward expression of an inward trust and faith in Jesus. It's this public declaration of our personal commitment to the Lord Jesus. Now realize it's not baptism that saves you. It's not the act of baptism that saves you as if the waters are are magic and and bring you uh, new life. We are saved, Ephesians tells us, by grace through faith in Jesus. So it's your faith in Christ that saves you. Um, Or excuse me, I should say it's God's grace that saves you through your response of faith. But baptism is a step of obedience that God calls you to. So again, rest assured, if you have put your faith in Jesus and you're on your way to the baptismal and you trip and die before you made it to the waters, uh, your salvation is not in jeopardy because you are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. It's not the act that saves you. And yet it is the step of obedience that all believers are called to. Because when we're immersed, we're dunked under the water and then brought up, it, it tells the story of the gospel, doesn't it? That we are identifying with Jesus and our old self is going under the water, representing death, being united with Christ and his death. And then we are washed, right? The picture of washing of the water and then by his blood, really. And then we're raised to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit and walk in newness of life with Christ. So Peter is calling for the crowd to have this really radical testimony of conversion. Not not a private, hey, non-committal, nobody really has to know about it, don't worry, Uh, just come to Jesus, we'll keep it quiet. Um, No, there's this public demonstration of commitment and obedience to Jesus. Now, notice another necessary question. Who is it that gets baptized? Verse 40. It says, With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accept, accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So who was baptized? Those who accepted the message. About 3,000, which is amazing, right? What, what a day to be there and see that. Wonderful. 3,000 come and get baptized. Um, But this text, realize this and others like it, as you read through Acts and the rest of the New Testament, is why uh, we practice baptism as Baptists, um, why we practice baptism the way we do here, right? It's called believer's baptism or uh, credo baptism, that we baptize someone once they have heard the message and responded and believed, Turn to Jesus in faith. And so we don't practice, as you see, the, the contrast to that would be infant baptism. Um, because a text like this. Those who are baptized should be those who have heard the message, accepted it, responded in faith. 
Jesus told us to go and make disciples? Baptizing them. So disciples, followers of Jesus are to be baptized, not um, infants who maybe we hope one day will be followers of Jesus, but people who have actually made that profession of faith. So if, if you were baptized as an infant, I want to be, want to be um, careful here because I know that, that some of us have had that experience. I was baptized as an infant, and then I was re-baptized as, uh, as a believer um, when I was in college. And I don't say this again to try and take away from maybe the, the um, a special moment in your life. I know sometimes we don't want to dishonor our parents. Hey, our, our parents tried to do something really sweet for us, and we don't want to try to you know, make them feel bad or something like that. But I just want us to realize from the scriptures what the teaching of baptism is. And so if you were baptized as an infant, um, that wasn't baptism as the Bible describes it. So I just want to encourage you. If that's you, hey, we love you. So glad you're here. And that's why I encourage everybody to, to take that step of baptism as a believer in profession of faith as, as the scriptures teach. We'd love to talk with you about that. It won't be a scary conversation, I promise you. Just go, we'd love to hear about your experience and how we can walk through uh, the conversation of baptism uh, with you. Our next baptism service, we're hoping, is going to be Easter Sunday. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, it's in, again, a few months. It'll be here quick, but would love to talk with you if you haven't taken that step. So, conviction, repentance, baptism. And there's a promise in the text. Look at verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the text has two imperatives, repent and be baptized, and then two promises that go with it, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Which really summarizes what the Christian life is all about, right? We, we turn to Jesus and in his name we receive forgiveness of sins, amen? And then the gift of the Holy Spirit, this new life with the very power and presence of God indwelling us. We walk with him now and forever. So realize the two sides of this coin, excuse me, <clears throat> that forgiveness means that God has canceled our debt. Our debt of sin is, is taken away, uh, removed, wiped off the ledger. Jesus paid for it with his blood. So forgiveness gives us uh, freedom from the penalty of sin. <clears throat> the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, gives us freedom from the power of sin. Right, so we're not just freed from the penalty of sin through forgiveness, but now we're uh, freed from the power of sin in our lives, God's Spirit comes to, to resurrect us, make us alive, give us new hearts. He makes us new. He leads us to walk in His ways. He breaks the chains of sin and darkness in our lives. He dwells within us, gives us resurrection life. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is now living inside of each of us. And Peter says in verse 39, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Two parts to notice about this verse as we're closing. One, the invitation is for, for those hearing it, for their children, for generations to come, and for all who are far off. In other words, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, how far you've strayed, uh, the invitation of the Lord Jesus is for you. He invites you to come to him, to repent, to experience his love and grace and forgiveness and mercy and kindness. 
no matter how messy you feel your life has been. And then he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And he ends this verse, this is for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now it's interesting because earlier in the chapter, uh, Joel is quoted, the prophet, and it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? And so it talks about our responsibility to call on the name of the Lord. But then here in verse 39, it talks about this is for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's confusing for us sometimes. We say, well, which is it? Are we to call on the name of the Lord or is the Lord the one who's calling on us, drawing us to him? And of course, I would say yes. Truly, we are called to uh, respond, to call on the name of the Lord, cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, place our faith in him, follow him, walk with him. And yet, as we do that, we realize there's this deeper reality under the surface that maybe we didn't realize before, that as we, we find Jesus, Really, he has been the one seeking us all along. Right? Isn't that our experience? We come to faith in Christ. We call upon the name of the Lord. And then we realize as we, as we walk and as we grow and as we read the scriptures that actually all along, he has been the one calling us to himself. We feel like maybe we're the one out seeking for answers, seeking for the truth. But then we read that actually Jesus is the one out seeking the lost. He came to seek and save the lost, he tells us. We think we're the ones seeking, hoping to find a way home. And we realize that he's the one who came to find us and bring us home. And so we're going to close this morning just with with a chance to respond to everything we've talked about this morning. And we're going to do it a little differently. Um, This is actually the first, first Sunday that I've ever done this. And we're going to invite you, if you'd like, to come up front, to come to the altar, so to speak, in response and have, have a moment there with God in prayer. Not everyone has to do this. You just want to remain in your seat. No problem. No worries. Uh, but we wanted to at least leave some space if you'd like to come forward and respond to God in that way. Because again, we found that often um, there's power in responding physically. Like we are embodied beings. And so sometimes when we just sit and in the quietness of our heart, do something privately that no one knows about, um, that's okay. But really it's, it's, it sticks a little bit more. It, it's a little bit uh, more profound if we actually get up and come forward and, and kneel with the Lord and sit before him in prayer. And if there's something we need to repent of or confess, we can do that quietly here. Uh, seated at his feet, so to speak. And so the, some music's going to play in the background. Again, some of us, plenty of us are going to remain seated. That's fine. Uh, but if you'd like to come forward, um, we had a handful of people that did it in first service and it was really special. And, and here's kind of the two, two types of people maybe I would invite to respond in this way. One is if you're here this morning and if you're not a Christian, you came in this morning, you're like, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian. Don't think, don't know if I've ever really responded to Jesus. I've never really been convicted of my sin and and repented and turned to him and asked for his forgiveness. Then then you could respond, but when the music plays in a minute, by by coming forward and and kneeling before the Lord and consider that a response, uh, crying out to him for salvation and receiving him. The second uh, person I want to invite to come forward is if you're here this morning and you're you're a believer, you've, you've walked with the Lord Jesus for years, um, you're not worried about, am I a Christian or am I not? But there has been maybe an area of your life that you have uh, needed to hand over to the Lord. 
There, you've been convicted this morning, perhaps, of an area of sin that you need to bring before him. There has been part of your heart that's been closed off to the Lord. Uh, again, a relationship, an identity, uh, um, a pursuit, uh, uh, something that you haven't fully given over to him. This would be an opportunity to come and, and lay it at his feet. Um, this would be, if you're a Christian and maybe you've, you've walked away or your heart has been cold or you've strayed for a time to say, Lord, I, I want to recenter my life on you and I want to come home, so to speak. Um, this could be if you're a believer and you um, just simply need relief from something. There's a burden on your heart. There's a, maybe a sin, a stronghold that you're trapped in and you, you need the Lord to, to free you from it. You could come before him and say, Lord, would you do that work in my heart? So again, we're going to do that. It's, uh, the music's going to play. Again, it's not for show. It's not to be seen. It's simply if you are feeling this prompting of the Lord to respond in a special way, we just want to leave space to do that and see how God uh, moves here. So would you pray with me, and then we'll leave some time for that. Father, we love you. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for our sins. We thank you that in his name, uh, if we confess our sin, we repent and trust in Christ, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. It's washed away. We then have eternal life in your name. We receive the gift of your Holy Spirit your personal presence in our lives to walk with us and guide us. And so, Lord, we just, in these moments, want to respond to you and however you're prompting us. We want more of you, Lord.